Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we're kicking off a new series here where we revisit some of the biggest flops in Disney movie history. Yes. Um, I, by the way, I almost said that I'm Joe when we were introducing ourselves. <laughs> we've done a lot of intros. I don't think we've ever screwed that part of it up. I, you know what? Yeah, like in, in the back of my mind, like my head was echoing, I'm Joe, and I don't know why, but I said I'm Angela, so that's good. That would have been a great way to start our show about flops, would be to screw up. But <laughs> yeah, uh, let's re-record. Let's start so, over, okay? <laughs> so we are, so today we're going to be talking about John Carter, which has gone down as one of the biggest money losers and one of the biggest, you know, quote unquote, flops in movie history. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and we're going to get into those reasons. But, you know, Disney does a lot of stuff well. They have a lot of great movies. Uh, you know, Disney Animation has a long history of great movies. The studios that they've purchased, Pixar, Marvel, uh, Star Wars, you know, Lucasfilm, they've, they've all had a lot of great movies. But every now and then, Disney makes a movie that is not so great. And they've had, you know, quite a few of them. Most of them are live action. So we're going to kind of start this series and we thought we would start with John Carter because again it is one of the more famous and more recent Disney failures. So, we're going to get into that today if you've not seen the movie or if you've not read the book. I mean, we'll probably give away some spoilers here, but I don't think it'll ruin the movie overall if you want to watch it later, if you want to pause and watch it or read the book and, and come back to this later, you can. But before we get into the movie so you have some time before we get into spoilers, as always, we're going to talk about the Disney news of the week. So some interesting news over in Disneyland. Disney announced that the Main Street Electrical Parade will be coming to an end, uh, as well as the Disneyland Forever Fireworks Show September 1st, which when I read this headline, I said, what is that right? Because the Main Street Electrical Parade just returned to Disneyland not only a few months ago, and I thought, is this right? Are they really getting rid of this show that they just created a brand new finale for and everything? But apparently so. So September 1st, uh, it's going to be ending its run they're going to be bringing in halloween offerings so i think that's one of the reasons why they're ending it but it's odd that it's not just a pause that they you know went through this this whole thing they sold popcorn buckets that people are going crazy for and then like four or five months later it's done right yeah i remember at the beginning of the summer i get a lot of my disney news from carly wisell so if you don't follow her instagram account make sure you do she does a great job and i remember her showing the beautiful Uh, popcorn buckets and that was kind of toward the beginning of summer maybe like late spring and now they're getting rid of it already and it's a bit shocking because it's pretty much a fan favorite and I know she even pointed out a lot of people are going to be you know kind of going to Disney right as they are getting rid of this parade so it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and it seems a bit early Um, it's kind of this culture now where we're like you know getting you know, it's July and we're getting back to school ads already. And I, as a teacher, hate that because then it reminds me I have to go back to reality. But like we're always, you know, a season and a half ahead, it seems. And I, I don't know. I, I, I definitely don't love this. I mean, it doesn't impact us as much because we don't make it over to Disneyland so often. But I would be upset if we were, you know, heading over there and we missed it. Yeah, a couple comments and thoughts on this. One, again, like you mentioned, it seems rather quick, especially since they made a big deal about it returning and they did create a brand new float for the finale. So it's like they put money into it to create a new float. So it seems odd they would do that for a, I think it came back in April. So for like a five or you know six month window. A few thoughts. One, D23 is going to be, I think, a week 
after this closure. I think it's around September 9th, September 10th. I think there's an opportunity for either an announcement about a new version of the Main Street Electrical Light Parade, or there's been a ton of rumors that Disney may bring this or Paint the Night or some version to Walt Disney World. So I think if they do something like that, that it's closing at Disneyland, but the reason it's closing is because they're going to be moving it to Walt Disney World. I think people will get so excited about that mm. that they won't care. And I think it's a good way to get people excited about the 50th because it is actually the 50th anniversary at Disneyland of the Main Street Electrical uh, Parade. So it's kind of tie into Disney World's 50th. They need something over there, I think, to get people excited for the last you know few months of the year. Um, about the 50th anniversary. So I could see them doing that. You know, the other part of me says this seems kind of odd that they would close it so quickly, but they also did close Happily Ever After, which was a <laughs> very well received nighttime show at the Magic Kingdom after only four years to yeah. replace it. So it's not like they're not, you know, they don't have a history of, you know, closing things rather quickly. Uh, same with, you know, Rivers of Light over at Animal Kingdom. So it seems strange, but I do think with D23, there's probably more to this story that we're going to find out uh, in pretty short order here. Yeah. I mean, I could see this almost being sort of a seasonal thing. You know how like they have the food, different food offerings, or at least they seemed like they did for a while for, um, you know, at Epcot. So like making it a seasonal different offerings of, um, you know, they do something one year and then something else or like something for three months out of the year and then they'll move a different parade over. So I could see them doing, you know, ha a Halloween parade around Halloween and then they switch to a Christmas parade. And then maybe at shortly after the new year, they bring the electrical light parade back. Yeah. But I'm totally for this if it comes to Walt Disney world. Yeah. I mean, pe people have been wanting that or some sort of version of, you know, a nighttime parade like this at Walt Disney world. And I think to your point, you know, for us, we don't go to Disneyland that often, so it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't impact us. So to bring it over to Walt Disney World, you could get a lot more people to see an awesome show. Well, it's kind of funny because we've never seen this. We've never seen this. We've actually seen Tokyo's version, though. We have, and we've seen Paint the Night at, yes. at Disney California Adventure, but we've not seen yet the Disneyland version. So yeah, rather interesting. Uh, a rumor uh, coming out that Blog Mickey was reporting on, uh, at least that's where I saw it. I'm not sure if they originated the, the rumor or not, but it's that Disney is considering an afternoon entry for annual pass holders for park pass reservation. So at Walt Disney World, everybody's aware you have to have a park pass reservation for the park you want to go to. You have to visit that park first. And then at two o'clock, if you have a park hopper ticket, you can park hop. Now they've paused annual pass sales. It is also you know sometimes difficult for annual pass holders to get park pass reservations, so they have a bit of a supply problem. So apparently, the rumor is that Disney is potentially you know throwing out to try to alleviate some of this and maybe to open up some more supply for annual pass holders. That there would be a midday option. So uh, you know, Blog Mickey talked about potentially a noon entry point or even something of like a four or five o'clock. So you could just do an evening. And and what they're talking about is if you do one of these midday reservations, that doesn't count towards your uh, number of park pass reservations. So you're only allowed to hold, uh, it depends on what level of annual pass you have, but you're only allowed to hold so many reservations uh, at a time on your annual pass. So that wouldn't count to this. So, you know, if 
if you just did it like a 4 p.m. entry, that's not going to count as one of your park pass days. Uh, and park hopping would, would still kind of be allowed. So this is interesting. There's also you know some rumors a few weeks ago that Disney was looking at the park pass reservation system and potentially considering that you would need a reservation to park hop so that you would then need to make a reservation for the park you wanted to hop into. I think this may make more sense. I think it would be kind of crazy to have to make a reservation to park hop, but I could see them doing this for annual pass holders to provide perhaps a little bit more flexibility for people that want to go spur of the moment. Hey, you can get a reservation at noon or five o'clock. You can come into the parks. This is good news for people who, you know, want annual passes because again, the limiting of the annual passes has been a bit of a point of contention. So it would be nice for them to be able to offer more. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people probably just want the reservation system to go away so they don't even have to worry about this and they can kind of just come in whenever they please. Um, but I do think this may be a happy medium uh, as long as they're having the park pass reservation system that, yeah, if you wake up in the morning, it's like, hey, I'm feeling Magic Kingdom today. They're going to have some more availability that you can just go in at noon or you can just go in, in the afternoon and you're not going to have to you know, do a reservation weeks and weeks in advance. And I think they'll have some more capacity because I think at this point with the park pass reservation system, Disney knows where everybody's going to be and start their day. And I think they probably have good stats that, okay, you know, if everybody starts their day at, you know, eight or nine o'clock by one or two o'clock, this percentage of the people leave the park and this percentage of people park hop, you know, people maybe go back to the resort or go to Disney Springs. So I think they probably know that later in the day crowds drop and so if you want to try to boost revenue, let annual pass holders that live close by come in at five and get some dinner and maybe buy some merch and see a show. And you're kind of gaining additional revenue pretty easily and making up for you know a bunch of people leaving. You can have some people come in and then, yeah, you have some maybe hopefully happier annual pass holders that have a little bit more flexibility to come into the parks. Hmm, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. You're so smart. Thank you. All right. And lastly, there's a new show on Spaceship Earth. This one is after Beauty and the Beast. And they're actually using the music of Be Our Guest in both English and French. So we've had a couple different Ooh. shows on Spaceship Earth. We had one, uh, The Muppets. We had one with Pocahontas and now Beauty and the Beast. So this seems to be a continual thing that every few months, Disney's updating the a light show on Spaceship Earth at night, which is great because they're quick little shows. They're really nice. It's easy to do. And it kind of makes it interesting every time you go to Epcot. You don't know kind of what show you're going to see. So I like that they're continuing to do this and hopefully they keep doing this in the future. I think what they've done with Spaceship Earth is probably one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the 50th anniversary. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that I like that even maybe maybe a little better than the statues. I do like the statues. The gold statues are a lot of fun. Um, I think that it's fun to find them. They're not, I don't know, they're not always in prominent positions or some in trees, but I think... Yeah, you can miss them pretty easily. Yeah. If you're not looking for them, you can miss them. I think That's once the new magic bands come out and you'll have some sort of you know, haptic feedback when you get close to them, they'll be easier to find. But yeah, I mean, I feel like the last time we went... I really wasn't looking for them and I feel like I didn't see like any of them. Like I saw like three of them maybe, you know, I'm sure we walked past way more, but if you're not actively searching for them, I feel like they are pretty easy to miss. Well, I, that was you. I, they call me Eagle eyes and in, in the circles that I run in. Well, and you were looking for them, but, to, I, but I think that's, I think that's part of the point too. And I think that's where you know people go, Oh, the f it's not really different for the 50th. It's because yeah, they, you know, they, they made all these statues to your point. I mean, they're beautiful. They're great to find, but, 
They also kind of put them in places that you could easily miss them. If you're, again, face down in your phone trying to see where am I get my lightning lane, you know, what attraction do I have to go to next that you're not looking around and it's pretty easy to miss. And so you might think, oh, they really didn't do much different. But if you're looking, there are, you know, a lot of these you know beautiful statues around. Well, fair warning, if they ever raffle those off for charity, we are putting a second mortgage on our home. That's about what it's going to cost you. Yeah. A second mortgage on your house if they raffle them off. I think that would be a nice thing to do. They did that with... Um, in early 2000s. Yeah. With the they, they made like the Millennium Mickeys and they yeah. had artists design them and everything or, you know, uh, celebrities, different things. They made the like Elton John one, I think. Yeah. yeah. And they raffled all those off. Um, so yeah, it would be a nice thing to do uh, for charity. Maybe, maybe they'll do it. We'll see. I, I, I kind of doubt they're going to do it. I feel like they're permanent in the parks now, but... Oh, no. I don't think that. You I don't, don't think, think so? Nah. I, I, I think it's something they did for the 50th. I definitely... Uh, I think it'd be cool if they raffled them off. I wouldn't miss it. If there was one in my house, I definitely wouldn't miss it then. I'll tell you that. I mean, we could get a small one, like the little... Oh, uh, you'd have Bruni. to. You wouldn't be able to... Like the Goofy? Like a <laughs> four or five foot Goofy? That's going to be pricey. Yeah, you're going to need like the little tiny Chippendale <gasps> or something I like that. I would love the Chippendale. All right. So let's get into our main segment. So talking John Carter. So for those of you who may not be familiar with John Carter, it is based on a book titled A Princess of Mars. It was actually written in 1912 by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And it's actually the first in a series of 11 novels. Uh, And it follows John Carter, who's a former captain in the Civil War, as he is transported to Mars. Uh, And in in the book and in the movie, Mars is known as Barsoom. Uh, And he's actually placed in the middle of a war. Now, this is at least in the movie uh, version of it. He's placed in the middle of a war between Zodanga and Helium, uh, who are two warring nations on the planet of Mars. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if that's confusing, uh, buckle up because it's going to get even more confusing <laughs> to you. Um, but, but kind of starting with th- the history of this movie, and I think the history of this movie is interesting, and I think it sets the groundwork for why maybe this movie did not work and why it lost a lot of money and is considered, you know, a, a pretty big flop. And I think one of the reasons, and I think you can point to this, and it's not always true, so I don't want to say this as a blanket statement, but I think a lot of times it is true, that movies that are in development for a long time and go through a lot yeah. of directors and, and rewrites and versions, there tends to be a reason for that. It's either a difficult mm-hmm. work to adapt it's hard for somebody to kind of crack the story to kind of get it quite right. And those movies don't tend to turn out yeah. that well. Yes. Okay. And this one is one that went through decades of development. So the book came out in 1912. The first attempt at kind of creating this or the first idea at making this into a motion picture was 1931. And so the movie actually came out in 2012. So you're looking at... 80 years of -hmm. development here. And it's actually interesting, the people that tried to develop the movie. So 1931 was actually the Looney Tunes director, Bob Clampett, who first (laughs) wanted to make it, and it was going to be an animated version. Uh, It wasn't until 1936 that they had test footage created, and it didn't go over very well. Uh, The uh, theater owners and the distributors thought, people aren't going to like this. It's Mars. It's sci-fi. It's not really going to fit in with what's going on. The test footage didn't go over well. So they kind of just canceled it at that point. So it, it kind of you know died for a while. 
And what's interesting is Disney then actually looked at it in the 1950s. So Disney has a long history with this as well. And they actually looked at it as doing a stop motion animation. And again, that really didn't go uh, too far, but it's interesting. So, you know, with these sci-fi movies, obviously there was not CGI in the the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There wasn't? No. What? So, you know, everything was animation. So, you know, it makes sense that they were either going to go animated or do some sort of stop motion animation to it because, you know, to do something on Mars or there's, you know, giant uh, green alien creatures with four arms that I think in the books are like... I think they're six arms. Six arms. In the books, I think they're like 14 feet tall. So you're not going to be able to do that, you know, as, as a regular movie. So I think it makes sense that they were, you know, kind of going with stop motion animation. But that was that was kind of um, a, a weak attempt. But Disney actually finally bought the rights to it in 1980s uh, with a plan to make a movie, and they did this in response to Star Wars, <laughs> which is a property that will come into play later. But with Star Wars being so popular in the 70s and the early 80s, they decided they needed an answer to that. They needed a space adventure, a sci-fi adventure. And so they actually bought the rights in the 80s. But again, we're not able to develop a movie. Yeah, they actually made a different movie. I can't remember what it was because um, I know we The Black we Hole. It. Yeah. The Black Hole, right. We, yeah, we talked about that in another episode where they made a response movie to Star Wars. But they, this must not have, again, you know, panned out. And they were like, well, we got to do something else. Yeah, it's interesting how Disney does responses like that. So you're right. Star Wars was kind of big. All the movie studios were trying to come up with what's the next Star Wars. You know, in the theme park world, Universal Studios got Harry Potter. And then Disney goes, well, we need a response to this now. What are we going to do? It happened that they used Star Wars as a response as part of that. But, you know, they used Avatar. And so, you know, it's interesting how in entertainment, Somebody does something well, and then everybody else just reacts to it. I, I like how they have to continuously up the ante. Like Universal's doing some improvements now, so hopefully Disney has a, a shot back. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it's kind of a cycle. It's it's you know yeah Universal ups the ante in the theme parks. Disney then says, okay, we see Harry Potter and we raise you Avatar and Marvel and Star Wars, and now Universal goes, okay, well we're going to give you Nintendo, and it's just like they just keep kind of going back and forth. That it's it's all very reactionary. Well, it, you know, it, it reminds me of you know that competitive nature that we have. You know, when I was growing up, I had somebody that was always a little bit better than me, and I always competed with her. She's also my friend, and then. You know, I, I always, she drove me to be better. So, I mean, those two need each other. No, definitely. And then, so then it starts to get interesting as things start to get more serious in the early 2000s. And I think probably things start to get more serious because, again, technology's kind of picked up. You can do CGI, things like that. It's it's easier to bring a story like this to a live action setting and not just be animated. Um, so the rights lapsed with Disney. They obviously did not make a movie in you know the 90s. And I have to imagine part of the reason was probably because this was like the resurgence of Disney animation. Yeah. They really didn't need to make live action movies at that point because they're just you know cranking out hit after hit. Well, and then Ron Miller had such a huge interest in live action and kind of deviating from that, you know, like making kind of kitty movies as he I think kind of viewed that. And, and so yeah. now that they had a different CEO, they moved in a different direction. Yeah, like movies like The Black Hole and that probably makes sense why in the 80s, you know, they bought the rights cuz you're right Ron Miller CEO was trying yeah. to change Disney's image a little bit. But yeah, I mean, when you have 
Beauty and the Beast and then The Lion King and Aladdin and all those movies, you really don't need to invest anywhere else. You just keep putting money in animation. Right. You know, and so I think that's probably another reason why it didn't really go anywhere. And then in the early 2000s, they had successes with Pirates of the Caribbean. So they're seeing success with live, live action now. So they kind of shift their focus again. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, the, the rights went to Paramount. So they purchased the rights in the early 2000s. And the plan was for Robert Rodriguez uh, was going to direct a film. And he was all set to direct. Filming was going to start in 2005. The idea for this was that it was going to be all digital sets like he did in the movie Sin City. So the Sin City is a oh, graphic that would have been cool. graphic novel adaptation. I think Paramount liked what he did there. So the idea was they were going to do a, a similar movie. Again, they were all set to start filming in 2005. Robert left the film. Things changed. John Favreau actually stepped in in late 2005 as a replacement for the director. And John's plan was to adapt the first three books of the series. He wanted to stay as faithful as he could to the series and, and, and to the books, uh, you know, as the source material. And again, for whatever reason, this is kind of lang languished out there uh, in, in development, didn't really go anywhere. And in 2006, Paramount decided not to renew the rights. This is an interesting what if here because it was 2005, 2006. John Favreau was set to make this movie. Paramount decided you know they, they weren't able to crack the story. They weren't able to make this work. They let the rights lapse. So John Favreau was now free to do something else. Hmm, and he goes he on to make Iron Man, yeah. which came out in 2008. So if John Favreau had made John Carter in 2005, 2006... Chances are, and it had done well, he probably would have been working on a sequel. If it had not done well, who knows, maybe he wouldn't be making movies, but he probably would have been tied up to not start developing Iron Man and kicking off the MCU. So because John Carter was such a difficult property to bring to a movie screen, it, it almost created the MCU <laughs> because I feel like John Favreau really brought something to Iron Man that kicked yeah. off in the same way. And it he showed that it could work. Yeah. And in the same way he brought something to the Mandalorian and almost revitalized yeah. Star Wars on the small screen. He really made the cinematic universe on the large screen with Iron Man and the MCU. And so just imagine if he had done this movie and not been able to do Iron Man and Iron Man didn't do very well, <laughs> we would not have, you know, Endgame. We wouldn't have the MCU that we'd have today. So it's an interesting what if of how these two, uh, you know, kind of properties intersect here. Yeah, I think that this is probably the most one of the most interesting facts about this movie is just that because it didn't work, it brought about something else that was, you know, beautiful and had a rich source material. And we'll get into, you know, the source material in a, in a little bit, but this is tough source material to work with, really. I agree with that. I think it's it was probably and that's one of the reasons why it had gone through so many different directors and, and people trying it because it is difficult material to kind of adapt. I mean, I think one of the one of the issues is like we mentioned at the top, I mean, the main character is a captain in the Civil War. He was a captain and, and for the for, South, for the, the Confederates. Yes, yeah, exactly. for, for the Confederates. And the movie kind of glosses over that. They they make him a little bit disenfranchised with the war and it's more of like he's just a soldier doing what he's told, but you can tell he he was kind of disgruntled with the war and what he did. And so I think they tried to do that to like soften that but there's yeah. definitely some like there's definitely some problematic elements in this and i think that is a struggle of how 
close do you stick to the source material and how much do you kind of update it to make it less problematic in today's environment. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I decided when we were going to do this that I wanted to read A Princess of Mars. So I got the book from the library and read it. And that was something that I was really struggling with from the beginning of the book, because not only is he a, you know, a general for the South, he, I think, was a proud general for the South, too. So they softened that part. But he he has conflicts with Native Americans and they're painted, you know, as all of the terrible things that they paint they used to paint Native Americans as. John Carter is just a super macho man. Um, there's nothing about him that is very likable. Yeah, and he's not meant to be likable. I mean, I think that character is isn't meant necessarily to be like your he's he's almost a bit of an anti-hero, I feel like, to a certain extent, where like you're not supposed to love him fully, but he he does have a lot of rough edges. I, I'm not really sure because like in the reading the book, he's very different, I think, than the character even in the movie. In the movie, at least he had parts of him that were likable, but in the book, he was just um, condescending. <laughs> he would talk down about the Martians, and again, it kind of got into, you know, that well, different culture. I don't, you know, understand a different culture. They must be simple, like it, that kind of mentality that was, you know, more like preeminent in the time that that was the book was written and you know of course looking back I kind of that's the the feeling I got about it I don't know if that's really what he intended but it seemed that way and so it was just it was a struggle so I kind of had to try to get rid of my frustration with that to just focus on the story and the story it did pick up eventually but one interesting thing that it didn't really have very clearly and you know if you're a writer you shoot to have goal motivation and conflict. And you're talking about character. the book specifically. Right, right, right. And so it he did not from the beginning of the book, I think it picked up, you know, about halfway through, I think it was somewhere around like page 100. You finally got a goal motivation and conflict. Like he wanted to get home. And that was the actual, what he was striving for in the book. Whereas in the movie, he's striving to kind of defeat this bad guy that's, threatening the life on Mars. So I think that they did a good job there, at least giving strong um, the reason why you wouldn't continue to watch the movie. In the book, it wasn't quite that much. The thing that motivated you to read in the book is the characters, particularly Sola and Wula. Um, so the Wula is the dog type character. Sola is his caretaker. And one thing they that I enjoyed in the book that they did is they really painted Sola as a very big outcast. She wasn't respected, but she knew she was different than everybody else because she was raised by her mother. Whereas everyone else just kind of gets an adoptive family and they don't particularly form strong bonds. And so that made her more caring and loving. And so she was very nice, um, kind of in stark, contrast to John Carter who felt like he just needed to fight his way out of everything in the movie though that was lost you know you could see she didn't fit in but they added like they again they kind of took a little bit away from her she was she didn't know she was the daughter of I think it was Tars Tarkas she didn't know that it was he brought her that information which I didn't like I liked that she in the book knew her she knew her place but nobody else did like it took away from her character. She didn't really have as much power and Woola as well. I mean, he was cute, but in the book he he just, you know, John Carter did talk about how Woola was very loyal and how he really cared about people and Woola would kind of like jump in and out of things and save John Carter. 
he would randomly disappear too, which was very strange, but he was very likable. They lost that power in the movie, I thought. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about the movie we got. So just to kind of wrap it up, ultimately Disney bought the rights back because Andrew Stanton, who had directed Wally and Finding Nemo for Pixar, had pitched Disney about creating a movie off this. This would be his you know live action movie for him. So Disney bought the rights back. It was originally planned as a trilogy based on the first three books. So A Princess of Mars, the next two movies would have been Gods of Mars and Warlord of Mars. And this had a really strong cast. So we had Mark Strong as Matai Shang, who is an alien species, I guess, even <laughs> for the Martians. So the Martians are kind of an alien species, but uh, an even more like omnipotent species called the Therns, who we'll get into this, but I have really no idea what they were trying to do. <laughs> um, you have Willem Dafoe in motion capture as Tars Tarkas, who was, again, this green alien creature. You had Taylor Kitsch, who was coming off of Friday Night Lights fame as John Carter, Lynn Collins as Deja Thoris. And then uh, the character you were kind of mentioning where they added in you know, an actual like bad guy in conflict. Uh, Dominic West played Sab Thane. And he was in the book, but he had a different role. Much in more the book. predominant. Yeah. Much more yeah, in predominant the in the movie. Yes. Yeah. And again, I mean, you know, as you're saying these names, Tars Tarkas, Sab, Sab Thane, you had the Therns. They all kind of blended together. And I mm-hmm. think that was like the biggest thing for me is this story was rather confusing so again you're you're thrown into this movie it starts with a voiceover kind of explaining what's happening that mars is called barsoom there are these two warring factions zendanga and helium uh, so sab is on zendanga's side and then deja thoris she's the princess of helium they've been fighting for a thousand years over control of mars and then all of a sudden mark strong shows up and he is a Thern who, for whatever reason, gives the Zendanga uh, general this weapon, which gives him the ability to basically destroy everyone so that they can basically destroy helium. We meet John Carter. He enters this cave on Earth. He's transported to Mars. He doesn't know it's Mars. You know, he thinks, what's going on here? He knows something's up because he essentially has superpowers because he's used to Earth's gravity. And Mars has lower gravity there, so he can jump very high and he's very strong. And so he's essentially a superhero uh, (laughs) who then gets captured uh, by Tars and his group. And then they're like this third faction that's on the outside of the war between the two major cities. Um, He meets up with Helium and then they try to use him as this warrior. And then it's just a lot of this like fighting. You lost me about five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, I mean... (laughs) You kind of lose yourself, and and part and of I it, watched this movie and read the book, and, and then and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Zendaya, Zon- Zendaya, Zendaya, she, she makes a cameo. Yeah, in this. Zendaya makes a cameo. No, but Sab from Zendaya and Deja from Helium have this arranged marriage to unite the two. Ugh, this was horrible. But then they're gonna. But then it's really all a trick that they're gonna destroy Helium. And then it seems like John Carter leaves, but he comes back because he's got feelings for Deja Thoris. That arranged marriage thing reminded <laughs> me of Game of Thrones. It yeah. was it was it had echoes of Daenerys Targaryen. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get into this in in echoes to other things because this is one of the the issues with the movie that a lot of people said kind of doomed it from the start. Um, so John Carter comes back. He helps he helps fight off. He helps Helium win, and then him and Deja get married. 
But then I don't know how long it makes it seem like almost immediately after, but here, but we'll get into some of the questions and issues I had. The therns come and send him back to earth and it kind of ends with him back on earth and we don't know what's going to happen. Him planning his own death. Yeah, that, that was Yeah, there's yeah, there's a whole subplot where where his He tricks his nephew and yeah, who, yeah. His nephew is Edgar is the, Rice Burroughs is the author. Who's the author of the book? There's a lot going on in this movie. And so we'll get into I think how that created some issues around it. But what I want to mention is it had a lot of big names in it. One thing I wanted I forgot to mention when I was talking about the cast. Apparently at one point Tom Cruise was rumored for a role in <laughs> this um early on and you know he backed out of it i wonder why yeah i I don't know but i mean it would have been a completely different movie with tom cruise so ultimately what happened with this is it was not very well received it had a rotten tomato score of 52 it's considered one of the biggest flops of all time it was rumored to cost over 200 million dollars it's one of the most expensive films ever made at the time with marketing it was 300 plus million it was rumored that it was going to need 700 million dollars to at the worldwide box office to justify a sequel it only made 73 million dollars domestically and 284 million dollars overall so disney actually took a loss of around 200 million dollars on this which makes it one of the biggest uh, money losing movies of all time so it did not go off well. So and I think when a movie loses that much money, there's a lot of blame that goes around. Everybody's like, oh, surely. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, this was the reason. You know, this is why I failed. This isn't why I failed. And so some of the the things going around, and I could definitely see some of this, and I think we have our own thoughts about maybe why it didn't do that well. And again, I, I think I mentioned this last week when we kind of previewed that we we're going to talk about this. I didn't think it was a horrible movie. I mean, it's definitely not like, a great movie. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, an a plus, you know, 90 plus percent on rotten tomatoes, but I don't think it's as bad as the publicity of, Oh, this only made $73 million at the box office. It's one of the biggest money losers of all time. And I think that is actually some of the reason why it didn't do well, because it did not start off well at the box office. And then that almost became the narrative of it that, this movie that Disney spent hundreds of millions of dollars on is not doing well. And then it kind of almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy that like, oh, this movie's a bomb. This movie's a flop. And then so people are like, I'm not going to go see it. And it's not that bad. But I think once you start hearing that like, oh, this movie's not doing well, that that narrative starts to take over. And I think a little bit maybe unrightly so. And so people go, well, I'm not going to waste my money to see that if nobody else liked it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that that definitely feeds into it. But I will say when a movie, you have no expectations for a movie or you think a movie is going to be bad, usually that sets it up so that it could easily impress you. And so anybody who saw this should have been like, oh, well, this isn't so bad. This is pretty good. Like, I liked it. And so it speaks to how bad it was that people didn't say, oh, no, the movie was good. Go see it. Go see it. Like, um, I know that there are many movies that I've done that with where I walked in. And I was like, I don't know what to expect. Sure, it's probably going to suck. And then I walked out and I was like, oh, my gosh, I love that. That was great. You know, I, I think that that definitely speaks to it. I, it's, it's not a very good movie. I think it's not a bad movie to throw on and watch. Like, I, I think to your point, you know, would I want to go pay money to see this? Yeah, I could see if you went to a movie theater, you paid, you know, 20 bucks for tickets. You bought some popcorn and things like that. You're gonna be like, you're not real impressed. 
But if it's free on Disney Plus and you're just literally out of things to watch, it's not a bad movie. D- disagree. I mean, depends on how many streaming services you have. But Netflix seems to put out a new bad movie every week, and every now and then it's a good movie. So watch one of those. Well, I mean, I mean that's a good point. I would say my time is worth more. I would to say me. it's no worse than a lot of the bad movies Netflix throws out. I mean, they churn out a lot of movies, and you're right, a lot of them are great, but a lot of them are just like hey, we just made this movie because we need to have a new movie each week. And I feel like it's kind of on that level that like it's decent enough that if they didn't make it for 300 plus million dollars, it would be a solid movie. But it's not it's definitely a failure when it's that big of a budget. And and some of the reasons for the big budget is there was a lot of reshoots. I think they reshot a lot of this movie two or three times. That was actually one of the critiques uh lynn collins mentioned is you know her character changed a lot through the reshoots i think they originally had her as more independent more self-sufficient and then they kind of brought that back in reshoots to she's a little bit more of a damsel in distress you can and you can see that in the movie i mean in the book a hundred percent deja thoris is just an object to an extent although not as much of an object as they almost make her in the movie and i'll i can kind of clarify that in a bit but uh, she, she's definitely, you know, princess in the castle. Let's go save her. But in the beginning of the movie, and I just, I just kind of thought about this. They, there's Starts a scene, tough, yeah. there's a scene with John Carter and he's like, Oh, I'll save you. And then she kicks butt and like, she saves him. Yeah. And she saves him. But then later on she gets captured and it's like, she doesn't know how to fight all of a sudden or, or she, I mean, I guess they kind of corner her, but it is really difficult to, to yeah, watch. She very much needs him in the end. Yeah. And, and it's difficult to watch because you know, at one point her dad is in her face screaming how she's going to marry this man. And it's such in star- stark contrast to the book because in the book, her dad tells her, you cannot marry this man. Our country would rather go to war than to see you defiled by marrying him. So actually, I feel like the old, you know, early 1900s book is more progressive than the movie they ended up making with her. And that's, I mean, whew, that's crazy to think about. I mean, she just ends up being just an object and she screamed at by everyone i mean she's supposed to be smart but she doesn't really do anything halfway through the movie she's not tough or smart anymore so yeah it, it's her character definitely has huge issues and i can see why the actress was not thrilled with that yeah so i think i think reshoots kind of made it a little bit of an, an uneven movie and also i think that was one of the reasons why the budget was so much why it was the most expensive one of the most expensive movies made at the time because there were numerous reshoots and I think Andrew Stanton had talked about this uh, in some interviews where, again, he came from a, a, an animation background where it's kind of easy to redo scenes. And so, you know, he even kind of went into it of like, hey, I, I know I'm not going to get this the first time. We're going to need to do reshoots. And that kind of increased the budget. Some of the other issues, you know, people on the film had was with the marketing. And, and this seems to be a common refrain is that the marketing was a big issue because they took out mars from the title because they didn't think people would like a movie about mars they took out princess in the title because they didn't want to alienate uh young boys <laughs> thinking that there's they princesses didn't in it. alienate yeah ah. so so a lot of people and they just went with john carter and with that it became very confusing about what this movie is even about because mars wasn't in it nothing was in it and nobody really knew what john carter was some of the initial trailers and promotional videos that they showed really didn't show what the movie was about. And so it it was difficult for people to kind of grasp what was going on. 
You know, at the same time, the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels were coming out. I think this was when the fourth one came out, which was another one of the most expensive movies of all time. Mm. Now, it did well enough at the box office to kind of recoup that and, and make enough money for additional sequels. But it didn't do, I think, as well yeah. as Disney had hoped. So then I think they got a little bit worried that, oh, no, did we maybe spend too much on this one? Nobody even knows what this is about. I think they started kind of hedging their bets a little bit and maybe cut back on the marketing, which maybe hurt it a bit. I think the other thing, and you mentioned this, of it felt very Game of Thrones in a certain extent. Mm. You know, I think a lot of it, a lot of people feel it feels kind of like Star Wars. I got a very big Dune vibe just in the fact that, mm. you know, Mars is basically a giant desert and sand. You know, like yeah. it, it felt very Dune-y. <laughs> <laughs> but... The, and, and a lot of people, I think, felt those comparisons. Uh, and it's interesting. And also, I think another reason why, you know, Disney's attention kind of shifted because in around 2012 is when they bought Lucasfilm. They yeah. were buying Star Wars. And so, again, their focus shifted on, well, we really don't need this to do that well. We got our own sci-fi franchise now. We got yeah. we, we got the good one. But but the, the, the issue with this is those movies, Star Wars, Dune, Game of Thrones, took all their inspiration from the original books. And so it's one of those things of the kind of copies of the original work that this movie is based off of has done these tropes and these themes so much that when you now make a movie about the original book, it's the one that seems outdated. The interesting thing too is that sci-fi is very well documented as difficult to produce as a movie. You don't see many sci-fi films or strictly science fiction films um, coming out. And there's a reason for that because it is so difficult to make them believable. I know that years back, I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called Valerian came out with Cara Delevingne. I liked it. I thought it was really cool and imaginative, but people don't always love that. I mean, look at some of the backlash that Taika Waititi gets for, you know, his Thor movies and people are like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like what you've done with the character. I love it. I love the creativity, but people sometimes just want repeats of what they've seen, but it didn't work in this case. And it was, it was just difficult to kind of digest. And again, they didn't, they didn't update it. Like you would think they would update this piece. And there are things that they added, like I said, the, the, adding a real conflict to the story needed done. They did a good job with that, I think. But I do think that character character for me is, is a crux. If you don't have good characters that people love, you're not going to have a good movie. They didn't do that. I mean, even the characters they had from the book that are really likable, they didn't do a good job of featuring them, which I understand they only had, you know, two hours to do it, whereas a book takes a lot longer to read. But you have to be able to identify with John Carter. You have to like him, I think. The problem I see also with this book and with this movie, and I think why it maybe doesn't work, is that John Carter kind of views this new world that he's in with frustration rather than wonder. It's something to be conquered. It's something to be, you know, he's figured it out already it's not it, it doesn't take him very long to learn the ropes it's just that all is a given and I think that what makes it difficult is that you look at that and there's a certain arrogance that's kind of implicit in that assumption and so if he had come into the world and was like oh my gosh this is really interesting the way that they get their their babies the, the babies are actually you know they just capture them and raise like but it's not, you don't see it through that lens. And so because of that, again, it goes back to the character. You know, John Carter just doesn't, he's he's not 
likable in that aspect. So I think that if they had kind of flipped that around, I think that that maybe would have made it a more enjoyable film. That's an interesting take on it that, yeah, he, he viewed the world and his situation yeah, with frustration and not wonder. And so that does kind it's of... It's a negative lens. Yeah, it colors the movie very differently than if, yeah, you're like, again, I mean, people don't necessarily love the sequel trilogy of Star Wars when they rebooted it. But mm-hmm. if you look at somebody like Rey, she's viewing the Jedi. She's viewing that world of Force users and of just Star Wars in general through wonder and excitement. And that that gives you wonder and excitement and joy seeing that world again. Whereas yeah, he's just like, why am I here? And it's a very popular trope that works really well. That's why it's popular. I mean, if you think of Castiel from supernatural, the way that when he came into the series, he doesn't understand humans and everything's new to him. And so it's funny. And there's so many characters that have come came before him and have come after him. Um, if you think of what we do in the shadows, the vampires interacting with the human world, and that's all kind of weird and new to them as well. I mean, that trope is really interesting. And so if it would have been apply- applied here, I think it could have helped. Yeah, and I will say, I mean, with Castiel, I think, you know, he had 10 seasons. I don't think he started off with with wonder and interest in humans. He was very kind of gruff and firm and I'm a, I'm a soldier. I'm here to do a job. But I think as well, seasons went on, he changed and then that's what we remember because that's you know such a long so it's hard to do some of that stuff in a movie versus a tv show i think ultimately this probably would have done much better as a tv series i could see and i i don't think it would be a bad idea for disney to do a disney plus show on this because i think you know again to your point where you made a comment of i'm surprised they didn't update stuff as much i will mention again this came out in 2012 this was 10 years ago and so I think within the past decade, yeah. the world's more pro- progressive now than it was. We, even yeah, back we've, then. we've changed a lot more in the past ten years. So I think if this movie was made today, there would be a lot more stuff updated. But I think almost this this needed more of a slower build, and a, kind of going back to Dune as a comparison, I think Dune did kind of what this movie wanted to do a lot better because it was a slower build and it it built the world better. I think for me overall. It was very confusing, and I understand Transformers. <laughs> I understand the Transformers movies, and to me, this movie was very confusing. From the beginning, I within the first five minutes, I go, what is happening? Because both armies of Zendaya and Helium, they looked exactly the same. One had like a little bit of red on them. One had a little bit of blue on them, but they didn't explain whose color was who who until halfway through the movie. So for most of the movie, I'm like, wait, wasn't that we re I rewound it like five to 10 minutes in. Cause I was like, wait, wasn't that just something is what I think you said. I was like, wasn't that just the guy they were fighting? Did I miss something here? And for me, that was a major problem of it because the characters were were a couple actors that looked alike. Yes. It was very similar. And the other part of it was, I think they tried because again, they planned this as a trilogy and anytime you plan to have, we're going to make 15 movies out of this. You always, I mean, just look at what Warner brothers did. Their plan was to build a giant universe with DC and it didn't work. (laughs) Do what Marvel does. Start small and build Pirates of the Caribbean. Same. Yeah. One movie and done from there. Yeah. But they, they threw so much into this and it was all jargon. I mean, it was all, we're not going to call it Mars. We're going to call it, Barsoom. We're going to call it, you know, we're going to be 
Zendigo and Helium and like there was there was it was very difficult to get into that world without having touch points. Like I think if they just called it Mars, that would have helped greatly. Well, the politics of it, and this is where it kind of relates to uh, kind of like Game of Thrones, except for you have various species, or I mean, definitely um, Star Wars. You have various species even existing on the same planet. They didn't even really get into the ape race that there is. Um, in the book, there's actually a run-in between, it's the first run-in that John Carter has after he gets captured. He kind of is, tries to escape and he he gets taken in by one of these ape things and Woola saves him. That's the first time that like we kind of see Woola in action. But they're very lightly brushed on toward the end of the film. It is confusing because you do have all of these things to work with. I mean, the the green aliens that he stays with, they're like very, very militant in the book. It's just, it's hard. They had a whole lot to try to do and try to pick and choose what they were going to keep. And again, a lot of it in the book, everything, like so much is war. As I was reading, I'm like, how is Disney going to make a movie out of this? Because it is bloody and it is very 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 much not their kind of thing yeah and it is a lot of conflict but I, again i think my point with like the terminology and the world building it's like it you, makes it hard to be accessible yeah and you got to take that slow because it's, especially if you know you're going for a younger audience you know in a lot of this stuff they're going to be confused by it and when you just throw them in again just all this jargon you have therns and helium and just like None of the words you know what they mean. Like Star Wars, to your point, there's planets, there's different species, but most of it is like very simple. It's you can relate to all of it. Sure, Jedi's made up, lightsabers made up, but a lightsaber is like implicit. If I say lightsaber, like it makes sense mm -hmm. versus a thern. Like what is a thern? I mean, the light side and the dark side is good yeah, versus yeah, evil. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like very, yeah, it's you, simple you have, concepts. You have to touch grasp. points that you can jump in on and then you can go deeper. Whereas this, it's like right off the bat, they're like, we're not even going to call it Mars. So you're going to be confused about what planet they're even on. You're like, wait, is it Mars? Is it not Mars? What's going on here? And the other part of it is, again, these therns, you know, Mark Strong's character, they never explain what their motivation is. I was so confused the whole time of like, why are why? they doing this? It seems like they're siding with the bad guy versus, you know, they're setting helium up as the good guys. And it's like, why are they even doing that? It's never explained. Again, I think that's clearly set up of this is going to be a sequel and we're not going to, you know make it explainable they reminded me of the tva a little bit like they have a specific set this is what needs to happen this is the sacred timeline and so that's kind of the way i thought of them yeah, but, but they don't that explain wasn't explained yeah, they don't explain any of that and it's just like hey we're gonna give you this power and go destroy these guys I don't know why. Like, what's what what's gonna happen? And what are you gonna get out of this? What is you know? Is it better for the world if they all go down? I it, it just it was never explained. Like you know, you think about Thanos and he's wrong in his thinking, but you know why he comes. He does the whole yeah. snap. You know what he is doing that for, and so it makes it understandable that in his head he is the good guy. And he's doing what needs to be done when nobody else will. Yeah. But like the Thor Thurns, it was just like, we're doing this thing because we're evil and bad. Like, well, why? I don't know. I don't even know if they're evil and bad. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I, I don't know whether well, they're good or they're bad. It seemed like they were still, si yeah. siding with People the bad People are casualties. Guys. So, I mean, yeah. I'd say that they're definitely not good. <laughs> they're on Earth. So they seem to be all throughout the galaxy. It, it, it's just, there was a lot going on. And I think part of the problem is they try to pack so much in and they had plans for sequels. But well, they still try to pack so much in this movie, but yet I think they focused on, and we've talked a little bit about this, the non-interesting parts, you know? So yeah. like where they focused on 
this like insane world building very early and throwing all these terms at you and all this stuff, they didn't focus on things that would have been interesting. Like what is the motivation of the therns? Like, why is this happening? I think some of the other just like sci-fi stuff they didn't really focus on. Like the whole fact of that John Carter got transported to Mars. He didn't get transported. He made a copy. Like the, their whole teleportation mm-hmm. and transportation system works is that you, you essentially make a copy of yourself and so his body was still on Earth while he was on Mars. They briefly, briefly I mean, mentioned that. I, I, I'm, I'm going to take issue with you on that one because at the end, that was like the twist. Like, oh, my God, he's actually still alive. And But his nephew, Edgar Rice Burroughs, has to guard his body so that he can go back. Um, I actually liked that. But that's literally the end of the movie. Like, I, I think. You know, but I think it, they would have ruined it if they would have went into it earlier. I I think that it's an interesting it's an interesting concept that that's how he got there is that his body was was disabled essentially and then a copy was made but you didn't know that but you didn't need to know that till the end I mean they allude to it earlier in the movie too but I think things like that would be more interesting like I, I think to my point I think it would have been a more interesting story if okay he's on earth like we maybe found out that he's really not dead earlier and it's the therns are now after him on earth trying to kill his body because he's you know screwing up their plan on mars i think there could have been a a more interesting story i think other things like the whole passage of time the movie seems to take place over a week or two but yet yet he wakes up in the cave and it's decades later because the person that died as he entered the cave is now a skeleton he's covered in dust so it seems like he's been there years and they never explain that it's like he's been on mars a week and and so i think things like that where there's interesting tidbits that they that they just completely gloss over okay so i i think i might be slightly getting on board i still think i like the idea that he has made a there's a copy made but there's a serious flaw in the story where the therns who are this species that's like immortal essentially that they wait the whole time he's on Earth, which we know is a long time, it's not like a flash in the pan so they don't have time, why would they see this man who's trying to cause problems for them and not just go kill him? Like, the, it would yeah, make sense they that they would try... Yeah, they track him down like yeah. the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah they, they track him down at the end of the movie, but like, why wouldn't they have done that sooner? They could have killed him. He was just laying there. There's no one guarding him. It wasn't until the end that he found a, you know, a, a custodian of his body. Yeah, like, why, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Some of the more sci-fi aspects of it that I think could have been a little bit more interesting, a little bit juicier, they seem to gloss over. And then I think some of the stuff they focused on, like it just made it more confusing. Yeah, I, I think overall, I would give this movie a D. Go watch something else. I think overall, it's a C. I mean, again, if you're looking D. for something to do, and you've watched a lot of movies, I wouldn't say... Go like, learn how to knit. I wouldn't say <laughs> avoid it. I, apparently you are. I wouldn't say avoid it. I think it's worth seeing again for even for like historical purposes, because again, the fact that it is, it went through so much development. It is seen as this like major flop, major money loser. I think it's interesting to see that and to kind of be like dissected of, okay, why didn't this movie do well? It is confusing. Like where could they have improved on it? And almost kind of play like Monday morning quarterback with it. Okay. Listen there. And I, I might take some heat for this, but if you're going for history purposes, then go watch Snow White, which is a terrible movie, but at least you can see, oh my goodness, that this this is when they were learning how to animate. But wow, this is a really strange scene where there's like 10 minutes of 
people just cleaning a house and there's no dialogue or anything and oh, wow they, this is boring they definitely were like we got but, a 30 minutes story how can we make this movie longer oh we'll just have we'll, we'll just show what we can make these animated characters yeah. do but like that I, at least i say yes that is worth it because if you know the history behind it it's like wow i mean this is cutting edge for the time i wouldn't say that about john carter no okay <laughs> i can agree with that so all right but that wraps up the show for this week want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, next week, we will be discussing the best and worst cues at Walt Disney World. Ooh, excited. We're going to be talking about our favorites and the ones that we think need some work. So definitely be sure to tune into that next week. If you've not done so, please leave us a rating or a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for letting us your ears. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you here next Monday. Bye-bye.